So this morning we're going to uh, look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. Bless you. Uh, Carrying on from last week, we looked at Hebrews 2, 1 through 9. Uh, We're going to be finishing the chapter. uh, Hebrews 2, 10 through 18. This is the Word of God. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. There's a lot, uh, there's a lot in this passage, so we'll try to just chart out the main contour of it, uh, some of the, the high points in the argument uh, to do that. I will need to be succinct and focused, and so let's take a moment to pray uh, and ask for the Holy Spirit to fill us and to help us uh, this morning understand His Word. Father, we thank you uh, this morning for the snow that is a reminder of how creative and artistic and aesthetic uh, you are, how beautiful you are, and how you effortlessly and continually create canvases of beauty that are ever-changing for us to appreciate and to see. There, There isn't a human being in the history of the world who could create anything even close to as beautiful as the snow that you make, as the sun sets that you send, as the moon that rises, as the stars in the sky, the leaves and the microscopic world and all the things that you have made, Lord, they are beautiful. And we thank you for giving us sensibilities to in finite scale appreciate uh, beauty and aesthetics. Lord, 
help us to see past them and through them to their source, which is you. Help us to look to you alone for fulfillment. Help us to see how beautiful and great you are. And Lord, help us to see what your Son has done for us, the moral beauty and shocking grandeur of atonement provided for sinners. Help us to see what it is like to be related to the King of glory and to be part of that group who are being led to glory. Father, we pray that you will open your word to us this morning. Send your spirit, fill us, uh, fill us with him. Allow, help us to uh, cooperate with the spirit this morning uh, as he leads us, as he guides us. Uh, allow us to focus on him as he points us to your son, as your son points us to you. Open your word now, instruct us, uh, correct us, strengthen us, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Now, uh, this text obviously is, uh, starting in verse 10, is picking up in the middle of a flow of thought. And so, uh, chapter 2 begins to apply the high Christology, the the high things that are said about Jesus in chapter 1. And now we're sort of, we broke off the argument at least in the middle by looking at 1 through 9 last week and now 10 through 18 this week. But the idea here that, that we're picking up is this. You recall in Hebrews 1, 3, in that prologue, that the Son is said to be the radiance of God's glory. Okay. And then, you'll recall, in chapter 2, verse 9, you're told that he was crowned with glory and honor. So, you have a link word here. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. He was made for a little while lower than the angels, suffered death, but now he's crowned with glory and honor. And now, he is leading many sons and daughters to glory. So the idea here is that he is the source of glory as God, as the triumphant king, he is crowned with glory and honor because of his death and resurrection, and now he is triumphantly leading many people to his own glory. That's what he's doing. And so the source of glory and the recipient of glory has glory to spare. And he's saving many sons, many daughters, many people of Adam's fallen race, and he is bringing them to share in the glory that surrounds him and emanates from him. And if you are someone whose faith is in Christ, this is the pathway of your life, this is where you're headed. You're on the road to glory. And you're going to get there because the source of glory and the one who's crowned with glory is leading you to glory. Now, if any one of us, including myself, had the faintest idea what that would actually entail, we would spend the rest of today with jaws agape incapable of thinking of anything else. You are on the road to everlasting and eternal glory 
if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's inevitable. It's your destiny. That's where you'll be. The Son is not going to fail in leading His people to glory. Now, many of us found out for the first time during Rick's announcements that it is Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> the road, and, I, and they probably, if I, if I remember my sports coverage tactics properly, they probably started the pregame talks three months ago. And so this morning, people woke up in whatever the earliest time zone is, somewhere in Australia, and ESPN already had pre-Super Bowl talk shows, you know, discussing all of the odds and all of the players and, and interviewing, you know, the, the fourth-string linesman's kindergarten teacher. He was always a big lad, you know, like those sorts of things, all that compelling kind of journalism. And, and you know, and they'll have all of these, and they'll have the cliche title, The Road to the Super Bowl. Yeah, and they'll follow all these teams, all the twists and turns and all of the rest. And then, then of course, for whatever that lucky team is who's, who, who win the Super Bowl because their trainers were, had the best steroids, you know, they will, when they have the post-game interview, they'll say something magical and whimsical like, I'm going to Disney World. You know, it's a, the path to the Super Bowl is really a path to Disney World if you're lucky enough to have that training staff with scientific prowess. And, and that's exciting. And there's a ton of people growing up in the world who, if they could just map out their life to, to be a professional athlete and, and then to be at the top of the game and to win the championship, or to be a professional singer, uh, or an actor, or, or, or a politician, or something, to get to the top of the, the heap in whatever that area is. See, that, that's, that's an exciting path. You know, you have your career path. You start thinking about university and, and then post-secondary education and, and what do you do after that? And then well, how do you sort of, you reverse engineer your life. I want to do this and so I need this to do that. And you start looking at all the things. We, we have these maps and these roads and, and what we're told is that Jesus Christ is bringing us to glory. Not, not the Super Bowl. Not Disney. Glory. Just, just let that settle in. And He's going to get you there. Because He's the Son of God. And it was fitting for God to do it this way. Interesting. What God has done is right. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists. Let's see, just one of those fantastic off-to-the-side kind of digressions that you just put in a, in, a, in a parenthesis. Just by the way, it was fitting for God for whom and from whom everything exists. The entire universe and all of human history is for Him and through Him. It was fitting for this God to make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what He suffered. The death and suffering and resurrection of Christ are not antithetical to the glory of the God who creates everything. Because you might almost think, actually, it's not really a throwaway line, it just looks that way. It's not just rounding out a little bit about God. It's actually reminding you there is no op opposition or obstacle to God which amounts to anything threatening to Him at all. 
In other words, the death of Christ is not because somehow God was forced into this by, by a strong force outside of himself. No, it was everything exists by God. Everything exists for him. Everything exists through him. He, he's absolutely the sovereign God of the universe. And so his plan of salvation, including the suffering and death of Christ, is his plan of salvation. It's not forced or dictated to him by anything else in any way. He alone is God. We might think the suffering and, and, and humiliation and agony of the cross is antithetical to God's glory, but it's not. It was the right way of doing things. It wasn't forced. He, he determined to do it this way. It f- was fitting that the pioneer of their salvation become perfect through what he suffered. And the word pioneer, sometimes translated author, uh, it actually refers to someone who's sort of, there's a couple different forces or nuances to it. Probably both are to be seen here. Uh, it can refer to someone who's the, sort of the founder and also someone who's like a leader. So in that sense, it's kind of like a trailblazer, someone who goes the path first and people follow along afterwards. And that actually fits perfectly with in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. That is, he's already the one who's been crowned with glory and honor. He's already blazed this trail. And so the pioneer, the one who opens the pathway to glory for us, is the one who's already gone through this pathway. He's already suffered. In fact, it's his suffering and death which makes it possible for those to come behind him. His sons and daughters can only come to glory because the Son of God was willing to suffer and even die in their place. He was made perfect. That is, He was made complete as our Savior through what He suffered. He was already perfect as God. He doesn't, he doesn't sort of accrue more um, moral merit or anything like that. You know, he, he doesn't become, once you're omnipotent, you can't become more omnipotent. Once you're perfectly holy, you can't become more holy. And so this is in terms of the perfection of Christ, is in terms of perfection as our Savior, as our representative. Through what he suffered, he was made complete or he was made perfect to be the pioneer of our salvation. He had to suffer to be a complete Savior. He had to die our death in order for us to be redeemed. There was no other way for us to be saved than for our Savior to blaze the trail all the way through the agony of death and bearing the wrath of God in our place. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So amazingly here, you're told this is, this is another, another thing that, that could actually cause you to reflect for quite, quite some time. God is holy. He's transcendent and perfect and pure, literally in a class all by himself. There is no one like God. He is absolutely holy in terms of transcendent majesty, set-apartness. He's also holy in terms of righteousness, etc., But the one who is holy, 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 is also the one who makes people holy. Both the one who is holy and those who are made holy. Which means that God really is, through Jesus Christ, 
bringing you, if you know Christ, He really is bringing you to share not only in blessings, but actually His character and attributes. You are going to glory. You are made holy. You are beginning to look like Jesus Christ. He's beginning to make you like God. The one who is holy is making you holy. And because we share this family resemblance of holiness, we're the same family. Now, think about that. This is not merely saying all those who are made holy are of the same family. The we are of the same family is tying those who are made holy to the one who is holy. That is, our family includes God. God is the Father. Christ is the Son. On the basis of our relationship to the Son, we are adopted into the family. So, God is, the, God is our Father, Christ is our elder brother, and we are all brothers and sisters, all because we share in this holiness that stems and flows from God. So, we are made holy as the family of God, as the children of God, and we are all going on the way to you know, the, the great family reunion and glory, which will include all of our brothers and sisters throughout all of human history, including hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions who are alive today that you are never going to have the privilege of meeting in this world. But one day, all of God's children will be together in glory in that holy place. And as we look at different people, what we will see is we will see them, but we will also see how they uniquely, in a way only that they could do, reflect some small facet of the glory and holiness of God. That is, God is infinite, and every finite person who is redeemed as the image bearer of God and conformed to the image of Christ, there is something unique about about personality and environment and sanctification and walk with God, there is something absolutely unique. That o- there's, there's a way that only you can image a certain small facet of the infinite God. In the same way that all that snow that's falling out there, apparently, you I mean for this, you know, there's no two snowflakes are identical, as if anyone's ever checked. I mean, like, honestly, I mean, there, there's probably like, like every billion they probably just repeat. I mean, who would ever know, for goodness sakes? You know, but, but for human beings, like, you, you, we're all, there's all just uniqueness. Oh, obviously, there's a lot of similarities, and, and, and sure, 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 but, but no one is you except you. And, and God designed you specially, and, and although we all bear the image of God, every individual, there's, there's something that only, only they can image. This is, what, this, is, this is what God looks like. And the whole package of that individual means there's some divine spark that is exhibited through them that could never be exhibited through anyone else. And in glory, we'll see that. 
we will see the diversity and the unity where everyone will be perfectly and immaculately the best version of themselves, and yet we'll also see in everyone the Son and the Father. So we'll see people, we'll say that's the image of God. We will continually be reminding each other of God just by existing uh, in heaven. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. On the way to glory, being made holy, the world may be ashamed of us. Others may be ashamed of us. In fact, sometimes we may even be ashamed of ourselves. But Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. In fact, he says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. Who says that? Well, apparently it's Jesus. What's that a quote from? Psalm 22. Now, this again is showing the author of Hebrews deeply reflecting on how Christ is the fulfillment of Old Testament themes. He says, that is, Jesus said, Psalm 22. It's fascinating. How does Psalm 22, verse 1 start? You, you do know this, even if you don't know the reference. You know this for sure. What is Psalm 22, 1? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cry of dereliction from the cross. You work through Psalm 22 and Matthew's gospel, and it's very clear that Matthew has constructed the narrative to show how Christ is the fulfillment of the details of Psalm 22. It starts with being forsaken, dividing of clothes, etc., etc., pain and suffering, death, agony. But then God has finished His work and triumphed. And, and the one who was forsaken by God has been delivered by God. He has heard me. It is accomplished. And now at the end, after all of this suffering, he's proclaiming the name of God in the assembly of his people, of God's people, of his family. Telling everyone, telling all of his brothers, telling all of his sisters about what God has done, the great deliverance he has experienced. Christ cries this out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not because you're supposed to stop at verse 1, but because he's bearing with, it, with that cry the entire context of the psalm. The first verse stands as the representative head of the entire thing. It's not merely that he's forsaken, that he's forsaken, he knows he's suffering, he knows he's going to die, but he also looks forward to the resurrection deliverance at the end of Psalm 22. He fulfills it all. And so the author of Hebrews, reflecting on these themes, can say rightly, he says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly, I will sing your praises. He will suffer, he will die, but there will be victory and life, and he will praise God amongst his brothers and sisters. Now, if that's fulfilled with Jesus, then Jesus needs brothers and sisters. That's the point. There is solidarity and unity between Christ and his family. And again, I will put my trust in him. Now, at first, that doesn't sound like a, like a verse overly dealing with the theme. Uh, but next, and again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Now, these verses are two verses, actually, back to back, in Isaiah 8, 17 and Isaiah 8, 18. And the context in Isaiah 8 
is trusting in God when no one else does, which is why you have that reference, or I will put my trust in him. That's why it's so important that he actually specifies that. I will put my trust in him. The whole point of Isaiah 8 is that there are a lot of people who aren't trusting God, and Isaiah is calling them to trust God. And here am I, and the children God has given me. Isaiah's children in Isaiah 8 are signs of the presence of God. They were prophetic signs that God had said there would be children born, et cetera, et cetera. And so Isaiah presents his children. These are signs that God is faithful to his word and he is still with us, so you should trust in him. These three quotes, when you put them together, so Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8, they really are emphasizing this. Even through suffering, the son always trusts the father. And he always has an eye to his union with his people. The father is praised. The son suffers and dies. The community of the faithful, God's children, are blessed. And they enter into the victory of their representative pioneer who blazed the trail to open it up to God for them through death and resurrection, which is why he can praise after he comes back, or after he has died. Verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives are held in slavery by their fear of death. Now, this is an extraordinarily important verse, verse 10. It gives you, it's not the only reason. You have to be very careful. Sometimes in the Bible, you're given, uh, a verse will be exploring a theme, or a passage will explore a theme, and it'll give you a reason or two why something has happened, but it's not the whole story. Okay, so you need to read the rest of the Scripture and you find out that, that there may be multiple reasons underlying something that Jesus did. This isn't the whole story, but this is one of the massively important uh, theological parameters behind the Incarnation. Because the children were flesh and blood, He too shared in their humanity. This will be developed throughout Hebrews, as will be later on. We're talking about him being a merciful and faithful high priest. I'm not going to say much about it now, except to say this. The penalty for human sin can only be paid by a human being. And so, if there is going to be redemption for human beings, the one who brings that redemption about must be a full human being. But the penalty for sin, which is owed to God, is infinite. And so, redemption must come through a finite human being, and that redemptive price needs to be of infinite value. Because God is infinite. Well, how can you ever reconcile those? How could you ever have those two things? How could you ever have a genuinely finite human being provide an atonement which is of infinite value? 
Well, the only way that's possible is if you have someone, a person, one person who operates with two natures. The Son is fully God and assumes or takes on to Himself the full essence and nature and attributes of humanity so that He is always, from the moment of incarnation on, fully God and fully man. He had to be made like them in every way. He had to share fully in their humanity. The church fathers said, rightly, what is not assumed cannot be redeemed. In other words, if Jesus is only a semi-human, then there's no salvation for real human beings. If he doesn't have a human mind, human minds are not redeemed. If he does not have an actual human body, human bodies are not redeemed. If he doesn't have sort of a, a human psyche, human psyches are not redeemed. He's fully man. Everything a human being is, Jesus was. It wasn't a pseudo or quasi-human nature, and he wasn't a hybrid. He was fully God and fully human. The person of the Son operates with two distinct natures, not mixing them, not confusing them. They're they're, they're separate, united in the person of the Son. One person, two natures, fully God, fully human. And as a being of infinite worth, as God. The atonement is of infinite value and can actually satisfy the infinite justice of God. And as being offered by one who is fully human, the death can be actually vicarious and substitutionary in the place of human beings. He had to In order to redeem many sons and daughters to bring them to glory, he had to share in their humanity. So that by his death, and and if you think about the prologue, Hebrews 1, you know, 1 through 4, the son's the exact representation of God. I mean, he's, he's the glory of God. He's the exact representation of the being of God. He's immortal. He's eternal. He can't die. And so in some ways, one of the purposes of the incarnation is that the son will have a nature that can die. Because he can't die as deity. He doesn't die as deity. The deity doesn't die. The deity doesn't cease to exist ever. It's not possible. When the Son dies, it's the humanity that dies. He needed to take upon himself a mortal nature to be mortal. Which means one of the purposes of the incarnation the great vision of the incarnation always included death. That was the plan of God, and it was fitting. The Son would need a nature that could die because it was only through death that the power of death can be broken. It's only through death that the one who holds the power of death, that is the devil, is vanquished. And it is only through death 
that the slaves are set free. So, he takes upon himself a full human nature so that he might defeat death by dying and breaking the power of the devil. The devil's power is in deceit which leads to death. That is, Jesus says he's a liar and a murderer from the beginning, but he murders through lying. He doesn't, you know, he, he, he doesn't you know, assault Adam and Eve violently, but he knows if he can deceive them on the, on the day they eat of it, they will die. And so he tries to bring about their death through deception and lies. That's what he does. Still does it today. Still very good at it. But what if his great weapon, which is death, is diffused? What if that, that only weapon he has is rendered useless? All of his power is gone. And what do you have to fear if you don't need to fear death? Think about how much time and energy is spent in our world trying to avoid death. That's all probably, I mean, like, put on your seatbelt, right, and, and, and those sorts of things. But, but the reality is, you know, people, this is the one thing, I think, if they're, if they're thoughtful. I, 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 I suspect, I don't know this, I suspect that this is one of the reasons why people are distracting themselves endlessly. Because you actually stopped and thought about what you're doing, what you're accomplishing. In certain worldviews, it, it's literally worth less. That is, there's no worth or value in it, ultimately. Death is just the end. And to think about that isn't overly pleasant. But what if there's actually nothing to fear in death? What if someone has gone through death and defeated it? What if there's been a pioneer who was made perfect through suffering, and after his death came back to life, reigns eternally, lives eternally, and is calling many sons and daughters to follow that exact path all the way to glory and eternal life, then what do you have to fear? What power does the devil really have over you? What can he do to you? There's no condemnation. Nothing will separate you from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. So what are you afraid of? coronavirus? I mean, honestly, like they, there's going to be a downturn in the housing market. Like, like, maybe some, some of us are afraid there's not going to be a downturn in the housing market and no one in the next generation is ever going to own a house. Like, so, so, what are you afraid of? You know, what, are, what are you so worried about in this world? You know, this life is temporary. No matter how long you live, it will end. It will. This last week, uh, my grandfather passed away. He lived on his own in his apartment, had some health care come in every once in a while and cleaners and whatnot, but he lived on his own in his apartment. He's 95 years of age. Some of us aren't quite sure exactly how he lived alone in his apartment some days, but he did. It's healthy, mentally sharp, physically healthy, until just a couple of weeks ago and then took a very quick downturn and, and passed away very, very quickly in the end. 95. You can't 
you, you can beat that, by, but not by a whole lot more, right? 101, 105, I mean, not to be morbid, but we're, we're going to die. We are. Every one of us in this room. Every one of us. What if you don't need to be afraid of it? Like not even one little tiny bit. What if, not in a perverse way, but what if you can actually look forward to that? Not trying to hasten it, but just sort of recognizing as much as that is the last enemy and we ought to hate death because Jesus hates death, that's also the very last step on the path to glory. And then you're there. You're there. We tend not to be afraid of things that are really good. If you're afraid of things that are really good, there's something slightly abnormal going on uh, in terms of psychological, emotional disposition. Uh, We tend to be afraid of things that are really bad. For the believer, because of what Christ has done, death, in one way, is really bad. It's the last enemy. The great hope that the new heavens and the new earth, there isn't any of that anymore. And yet, for us who know Christ, we absolutely do not be held in, we don't need to be held in slavery for fear of death, because death is not the last word, and it, it is not ushering us into something which is awful. It is ushering us into the very presence of God. Now, the author then says this, which I won't take the time to discuss this morning, but it's well worth thinking about. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. That is theologically extraordinarily powerful. The son does not take upon himself an angelic nature and provide atonement for angelic beings. That by itself should cause you to recognize how utterly gracious the grace is that causes the Son to become a human being to save human beings. He does not have to provide atonement for any fallen, sentient, moral beings. He doesn't for angels. He does for us. That is unspeakable grace to Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way. There is not one little bit of Jesus that wasn't fully human in terms of humanity, nothing lacking, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he may make atonement for the sins of his people. High priesthood and atonement will be talked about at length uh, in the chapters to come, so we'll, we'll hold off there. Only to say this at this point, in terms of this argument, it's only as a human being that he can represent human beings to God as the high priest who's the mediator between God and people and offer the sacrifice of atonement. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In other words, again, as the deity, Christ is never tempted. But as a human being, he is. And he's merciful and faithful. 
He knows what it's like to be tempted. In fact, Christ, more than any other human being, actually knows what it's like to be tempted. Most of us don't. And the reason I say that is this. Um, some of you know uh, my good friend David Enns, and, and David uh, helps lead singing every once in a while. David, would you, would you mind, not to put you on the spot, would you mind just standing up? <laughs> no, and just, yeah. <laughs> that's, now, now, you will notice, that, that's probably sufficient. Thank you. You will notice that, in comparison to me, Dave's a pretty small guy. <clears throat> not sure. Maybe we need a, that visual comparison just one more time. So, Dave, uh, you, don't need to, you don't need to tell us exactly, but uh, if you were just to go to the gym and throw some, some weights on a bar of some kind, like, what would you, what would you bench press? 5,000 pounds? <laughs> About that. For, if, you're doing, if you're doing lightweights, high reps, like 5,000 pounds or so, uh, somewhat like me. So, so a lot, some of us know what it's like. You, know, you, you, you go to the gym and you're, and, and you're working out and, and, you know, Dave, if you ever need a spotter, I'm, I'm your guy. Okay. And, and you're working out and you try to, you try to get your, your, your one rep max. Right? So I won't, I won't tell you what the weight was, but uh, a while ago, uh, I, I was, uh, some, of my, some of my students at Heritage were talking about working out. It's like, okay, I'll, I'll go to the gym. Uh, sure, I'll come work out with you. It'd be great. So they load up the bench press bar because somehow people who don't work out think that the only test of strength is bench press. Well, it is ridiculous. Uh, anyway, so they load the bench press bar and and like, I think I, I think I can do this weight. I think I can. Now, what had happened was, because they're theology students, they can't do simple math. <laughs> and they had about 30% more weight on the bar than they told me was on the bar. Or maybe they can do math and hate me. That might have actually been the case too, now that I think about it. And so... <laughs> They bring, they help, they just sort of lift the bar up and holding it, and, and I lower it, and as I'm coming down, I'm like, this isn't going back up. Like, there's, <laughs> that's, that's not going to happen. And so, so you know that there's like this sort of sticking point where if you're bench pressing, no matter how long it takes, if you can just sort of get past this little sticking point, then you can get it up. But if you hit that sticking point and you don't get past it, the bar just sits there, and then eventually is on your chest. And so it's coming down, and, I, and I'm just thinking, this is, this is not going up. And sure, sure enough, hit the sticking point. I'm like, when you're pushing as hard as you can and the bar's literally not moving, that's problematic, right? So, so they help get it up, and, and I'm like, what? I mean, I'm so disappointed. Like, I really th- I thought there's a good chance I could do that. And then, then we start taking the, the plates off, and I'm like, what are you, that's not the right way. That's not what you told me. You know, but so, so you can say, well, do I know what it's like to lift that weight? No. Well, why? Because I failed to lift that weight. Only the person who lifts the weight knows what it really feels like. A lot of us don't know the full weight of temptation precisely because we've given in. We didn't get it all the way back up. 
Jesus, no matter how heavy the weight was, always successfully lifted it. Most of us haven't even been close to that. We give in to a, to a little bit of gossip. It's not even that weighty. A little bit of lust, a little bit of impatience or anger, whatever. Jesus always universally felt the full weight of every temptation and every trial and successfully bore that entire weight every single time. And He knows that we're weak. He knows. And so, when we're suffering under temptation, and frankly, one of the difficult things about temptation is not the intensity but the duration. You just want the temptation to go away. And so, you give in, not even, sometimes, not even, not even to just uh, because you, the temptation is overwhelming, because you're so tired of fighting it. You know, you've, been, you've been biting your tongue for so long, and, and you finally get an opportunity to say what you wanted to say, and, and you've been fighting it for so long, and, and you just give in, because now I just want to have it over with. I want to get it out. That usually creates other spiraling issues. But Jesus never did that. He never got worn down. He was never too weak. Neither intensity or duration of temptation ever caused him to fail. Just think about the moral strength required for that. Never once in any way ever gave in to a wrong inclination. Bore the full weight all the time. He suffered when he was tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. If you need a spotter in the moral gym, look to Jesus because He can get that bar up every time. He knows you're weak. In some ways, you know, it's okay to, to, to glory in your weakness because you have someone who's infinitely strong, who's there for you. This is the Son, bringing many sons and daughters to glory, made perfect through suffering, making us holy, praising God in our midst, gathering us as family, sharing in our humanity so that He can die in our place, breaking the fear of death, helping Abraham's descendants, made like us as a merciful, faithful high priest. He made atonement for our sins, and He helps us when we're tempted. And that's just a handful of verses in one epistle in the New Testament. The Son is pretty great understatement. And when we celebrate communion this morning, which we'll do in a moment, we will think about the greatness of, our, of the Son of God and what He's done, faithful high priest providing atonement. Communion is communion with God through Christ. It's communion with Christ, and it's also communion with the brothers and sisters, the family of Christ redeemed. And so let's remember that uh, this morning as we celebrate communion together. I'll ask those who are helping to distribute the elements to come forward. Those uh, who are not distributing, just take a moment to pray. Focus yourself on God, and we'll celebrate communion together. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of the Son, your Son, whom you love. So that you did not spare your Son, and He volunteered to not be spared on our behalf. Help us to see to the extent of the capacity that we have 
the glory of the Son, all that He has done for us and all that we receive in terms of benefit through His work. Help us to be very mindful that these elements represent His body and blood, the atoning sacrifice of His, lo- of his love and life poured out for us. Father, by Your Spirit, may this be a meaningful time, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember our Lord as you eat the bread. Our Father, the only reason we have these elements and these emblems is that your Son took upon Himself genuine humanity. Before creation, before the incarnation, He did not have a physical body, but He assumed one so that there could be a body that was nailed to the cross, so there could be blood that flowed, so there could be a human life that was poured out. This morning, help us to understand a little bit more of the magnitude of what that means, that the eternal Son of God shared in our humanity so He could die in our place, and then also be resurrected to eternal life in our place so we could live forever too. Help us to see Jesus, for we ask it in His name. Amen.